In the 90s, was there a more popular sports legend than Michael Jordan? You can answer that question. Was there? I don't think that I can think of one. Do you remember the, the signs or the slogans that you would see around and it said, what, be like, finish it for me, be like, there's a picture going to be up on the screen, be like Mike. And how many of us had those Nerf basketball goals that were in our bedrooms? You remember what I'm talking about? You put them on the bedroom door and we would practice jumping from the bed all the way to the goal, slam dunking it with doing what with our tongues? Sticking them out like we were Michael Jordan. There were millions of Americans that wanted to imitate Michael Jordan. And of course, Gatorade wanted to imitate him by doing what? You can talk out loud, it's okay. By drinking what? By drinking Gatorade, right? That's what they wanted us to do. Now, if I were to sit down with each and every one of you this morning and ask you, what is it that drives you? What's your passion? What are your goals in life? I hope that most of us have gotten past the stage where we say, well, my goal in life is to be my, like Michael Jordan. But how would you answer that question? What would you say if I were to ask you, what is the vision that's driving your life? What's the vision that's driving your life? Every single one of us, we are living our lives for a particular vision, a particular story of what we believe would be the good life. That if we could just have this, that this vision that we have, it shapes our life, it shapes our pursuits, it shapes our identity. Really, it shapes everything about us because we have tunnel vision so many times and we're chasing after this vision that we have. For some of us, it's about ourselves. To reach a certain point in our career, to have a certain amount of money in the bank account, to own that second home, to live on the certain side of town. And then for others of us, maybe it has to do with our children or grandchildren. If they could just get into this sorority, if they could just make this sports team, if they could just have this group of friends, if they could just get into this school, if they could just be on this list that other people would look up to them and say, oh, now, I respect them, and we have this vision, we have these goals, and we sell out almost everything at times in order to pursue this vision, because if we're honest, sometimes it controls us. Every person, we all have a story that shapes us. So the question that we want to get to today is if we have this vision, if we have these goals or this purpose and it shapes our identity, it shapes our future, then how do we determine what that vision is? How do we determine what it is that truly is controlling us? I have seven questions that I think that if you ask yourselves these questions over the course of the next few days, that they will help you determine what is it that truly controls you. Now, I want to make sure you understand, none of these questions are original thoughts. They are all gathered from different materials, but I think that if you can honestly answer these questions, it will give a peek into what truly does control you. The first question that you can ask yourself is simply, early on in a conversation with others, what do you want to make sure that people know about you? Those first five minutes that you meet someone, what is it that you want to make sure that they know this about you because it is central to your identity? Not necessarily even a bad thing, but you make sure if they don't know anything else, this is what I want that new person to know about me. Second question, what preoccupies you? What do you daydream about when you're sitting at home, you're sitting at work, you're lying in bed? What is it that controls your thoughts? Number three, 
What makes you feel the most self-worth? What is it that if you failed at this one thing, you would feel like you lost everything? It would completely devastate you because it is so central to who you are. Number four, what are you the most proud of in your life? When you look back over the course of your life up to this point, what is it that you would say, this is what I am the most proud of? Number five, for what do you want to be known? What is it in your life that you hope this is what people know me for? Number six, what do you worry about the most? It's always controlling. It's always in the back of your mind. And the seventh and final question is when things go poorly, what do you look to for comfort? When things go poorly in your life, what is it or who is it that you look to to bring that comfort that you need? See, I think these are important questions to help us get at what is the driving narrative of our life. Some might say, what is truly the Lord of our life? This is the most important thing for us. This morning, as we continue our series to the book of Acts, we're going to be in two chapters in Acts. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them to Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're going to have kind of a summary of chapter 6 and 7. And what we're going to see is an incredible witness of what truly is the one story, who truly is the one Lord that is worth living and, if need be, worth dying for. You and I, as we read through Acts chapter 6 and 7, we are going to have what I call a front row seat of someone who truly gets it, who's someone who said, this is what is the driving vision of my life. This is what is most important. And I think we have so much that you and I can learn from this one character in Acts chapter 6 and 7. If you have your Bibles open, Acts chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 7, where it says, and the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, here's our main character for the day, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now Luke, of course, who is the author of Acts, he's very intentional in including the the, the life and the death of Stephen, because Stephen's story is going to be very intricately connected to the entire book of Acts, as we're going to see. Let's continue reading in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those who are from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, don't miss this next phrase. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen is such a powerful witness for Christ that they're not really sure what they're going to do with him. Now, for those of us that were raised in church and we've heard this story before, we know how Stephen's life ends. I'll go ahead and end the cliffhanger for you. We know that he's going to be killed for his faith. And many of us, we remember Stephen for the way that he died, and we're going to look at that in just a few moments, but I don't want us to miss the powerful witness that he was for Christ, the incredible leader he was for the first church while he was still alive. We're going to see that Stephen's life, it has really some some incredible parallels between Jesus' life. Some of the same things that happened to Jesus actually happened to Stephen. 
we see that his ministry, it was so powerful that they can't find any charges to bring up against Stephen. So they have to go behind his back like they did Daniel, you'll remember, in order to find something wrong about him. Look at the next verse in, in verse 11. It says, then they secretly instigated men who said this, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Does it sound familiar about what they did against Jesus? They go behind his back and they make up lies. They bring up a false witness. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses. And here's what the false witnesses said. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What we have here is a mob scene that's about to come and capture Stephen. And the charges that they are going to bring up against Stephen's life, they are very, very similar to the charges that are brought up against Jesus at the same, before the same high council. What are those charges? The first is blasphemy, that he's speaking against God. The second charge is that he's teaching a different religion. And the third charge is that he's teaching a different story of salvation, that there is a way that you can have peace with God apart from keeping the, the commands of the Old Testament, apart from all that the, the scribes and the religious leaders were teaching. So the high priest looks at Stephen and says, Stephen, are these things so? Are these charges that they bring up against you, are they so? And Stephen in Acts chapter 7, we're going to see his response. Acts chapter 7, I believe, is the greatest courtroom scene in the history of the world. How many of you remember growing up seeing the movie A Few Good Men? Raise your hand. I know, I think it was R, and that's bad to say, but we've seen it, okay? Um, let's just be honest, all right? And so there, there, there's Tom Cruise. Is it Tom Cruise, right? And Jack Nicholson, and they're, they're going back and forth, and Tom Cruise says, I want the truth, and Jack Nicholson says what? You can't handle it, and there's this tense moment there. I don't think that holds a candle to the scene that was here when Stephen is standing before the high priest, and he says, are these things true? And so they drag this guy, Stephen, they drag him out, and Scripture says, according to Luke, that he is full of wisdom, that he's full of power, and they accuse Stephen of something that's false. And Stephen's response in Acts chapter 7 is the longest sermon in the entire book of, of, of Acts. Now, I think it's important to see that. I want to take a time out here for a second. Before we jump in to some of the highlights from Acts chapter 7, what I hope that we will recognize is that we will see that God does his greatest work through ordinary people. He does his greatest work through ordinary people. Do I need to remind you of what happened in, in Acts chapter 4 where um, Peter and John are called what? Uneducated common men. And here we have Stephen who's going to give the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And by the way, Stephen is not a disciple. Stephen is not a professional. Stephen is a lay person. One of the most powerful sermons given in the Bible, except from the words of Jesus, of course, is given not by a disciple but by a lay person. I think what Luke is trying to convey to you and me 
is that those of us who are ordinary men and women but are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who make ourselves available to be used by God at any point, that we have the ability to do anything that the first Christians did. Remember what what Jesus told his disciples? It was before he was about to be crucified and before, of course, he was raised from the dead and goes to heaven. He makes this kind of obscure statement to his disciples in John 16. He says this, he says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Think about how absurd that comment must have been to those disciples. These men that had sold everything, that for three and a half years had walked side by side with Jesus, and now Jesus turns to them and says, hey, I got something better for you. It's going to be even better for you if I leave. Don't you think they looked at each other like, oh, are you, what, what's going on here? What did Jesus mean when he said it would be better for you if I leave? Jesus said that the power of the Holy Spirit that would work inside each of those disciples, the same Holy Spirit that if we have trusted Christ that we have living inside of us, that that power would be greater than the presence of Jesus walking beside us. That's exactly what we see happening here with Stephen. See, church family, I believe this with all my heart. I believe that the most important message that will ever be delivered will not be delivered from behind this pulpit. The most important message that will ever be delivered will be delivered by you to the sphere of influence that God has given you, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to your teammates, to your family members, that you are going to share the gospel with them. A lot of times it's easy for for you to look there and say, oh, I'm off the hook. I'm not a professional. I didn't go to seminary. I don't get paid to, to do this stuff. No, no, Stephen is an example to us that we are all called, if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, to share the gospel with other people. God used Stephen in an instrumental way here. I believe that one of the purposes of our weekly gathering of believers, the weekly gathering of corporate worship as we come here um, each and every Sunday, is to equip the saints so that then we can go out and do the work that God has called each and every follower of Jesus to do. Stephen had clearly heard the word of God taught throughout his life. When he heard the word of God taught, he must have hidden that word in his heart. And now when he's about to be stoned to death because of what he had heard, because of what he had hidden in his heart, now he's about to deliver one of the most incredible sermons ever given. I heard several years ago an illustration that was given. I really don't remember who said this. I think it's Francis Chan, but I'm not exactly sure. But he gave the illustration and he said that a worship service is supposed to be like the huddle of a football game. So the worship service is the huddle and the pastor is the quarterback. So the pastor of the, of the huddle is supposed to call the play. So he said this about churches. Now I'll let you determine whether this is our church or not, but this is the example that he gave. He said, imagine that you're watching a football game. During this football game, all of the players, which would be you, come up to the quarterback, which would be me, and listens as the quarterback calls the play. After the play is called, all of the members stand back, they fold their arms and say, man, that was an awesome job calling that play. The hair was standing up on the back of my neck. Man, you did a beautiful job calling that play. And then they turn around and they go sit back down. After a few minutes, they stand back and they say, hey, quarterback, call another play. Do it again. You see, that's not the purpose of the quarterback calling the play, is it? The purpose of the quarterback calling of the play is so the players will go out and do what? 
You can say it. We'll go out and run the play. The reason that we come to church is not to get fired up over a message, to go home, say, oh, we got a great church. I love my church. I love my pastor. I love the music. And then just wait till the next Sunday. We as the church, as the followers of Jesus, we are to come and to hear the play call. By the way, it's not Blake's call. Hopefully it's the word of God that we're calling to hear the word God. Uh, Then we go out throughout the week and we run the play. We don't sit and soak. We know that we are part of God's story, not just the staff. We are all called to be part of God's kingdom plan. So here we have Stephen. What's he doing? He is running the play. Someone had taught him the word of God over and over. He had hidden that word in his heart, and now he's about to deliver his sermon. In chapter 7 of Acts, he's going to take these accusations that are actually thrown against him, and he's going to show his accusers how, in fact, they are the ones who have gotten their own story wrong because they've misunderstood who Jesus really is. There's two main points that he makes in this sermon in Acts chapter 7. First, he says that Israel, who he's calling to the leaders, he says, listen, you have always resisted the prophets, that time after time God has sent men to you to say this is the way, walk in it, but you've always rejected them. The second point that he gives is that your law that you're trying to obey, your law cannot save you. You've never been able to keep the law. And by the way, the law cannot give you a new heart. Stephen, in essence, he looks at him and says, guys, you're living out the wrong story. And then Stephen, he almost like he turns the tables on them. And he says, guys, you're calling me blasphemous? You are actually the ones that are performing blasphemy because just like your forefathers, you have rejected the one true Savior, the one true Messiah. And in chapter 7, again, I would encourage you at some point today before you go to bed, it takes five minutes, ten minutes max, if you would read Stephen's sermon. Incredible illustration of what he gives back because of what he had heard from the Word of God. And in, in this sermon, he has three major themes that he's pointing out. And so we don't have time to read the whole thing. So here are the themes that he brings up in Acts chapter 7. The first theme is that the activity of God, it's not confined to the land of Israel. He speaks of Abraham. He talks about Joseph and he talks about Moses. He says, listen, God led them outside the land of Israel. So you're teaching that God would only work in this land, but God can work outside of the land of Israel. The second theme that he has is that worship that is acceptable to God, it's not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. He talks about the burning bush. He talks about Mount Sinai. He talks about the tabernacle. He says all of these places were suitable places of worship, even in the Old Testament. And the third major theme that he gives in Acts chapter 7 is he says the Jews have constantly rejected God's representatives. We talked about that a minute ago when he says that Israel, you've always rejected these prophets that, that God has sent your way. And the two examples he gives are Joseph and Moses. Now listen to me. I believe that Stephen knew that when he delivered this sermon, he had to have known that was his death warrant. He had to have known that as soon as I deliver this sermon, my life is over. But here we see Stephen, after delivering this sermon, he's still standing tall for Christ. Stephen had lived his life like Jesus. He had just delivered words like Jesus delivered, and now we are about to see that he is about to die like Jesus. He talks about the very things that he's being accused of. 
And he recounts to them that their story of salvation in such a way that he tells his accusers that because of their misunderstanding, because of their rejection of Jesus, they have really misunderstood their own story. Let's take a step back for just a second. I want us to understand here today, this is not just a story that's about those that were in Acts. The story of Stephen is telling us, just as, Jesus, just as Stephen was telling those religious leaders, he's saying, the story that you're living for, in their case, it was the Old Testament. The story you are living for, it is incomplete and therefore, it is misshaped, and it is the wrong story if Jesus is not at the center of that story. Now listen, we know that that's true for those that aren't following Jesus. You and I know of men and women and teenagers that we know they're not following Jesus, and it's easy to say, yep, it's right. Their story is wrong because Jesus is not the center of that story. But I think this story is true as well for those of us that are followers of Jesus. Listen to me, friends, one of the reasons that we meet as a body each and every week is so that you and I can encourage one another, the importance of small groups, that you and I can hold each other accountable, that day by day that we keep Jesus as the center of our lives, that he is the driving narrative, that he is what preoccupies our thoughts and minds. This looks different at every stage of life, by the way. Jesus being the center, being the most important thing in your life, it looks different when you're in high school than when you're in college. It looks different when you're in college to when you graduate and you're living on your own, to when you have kids, to when you're an empty nester, to when you're retired, to when all of these things. But we have got to figure out, because listen, there is no retirement plan from following God. There's no taking a break so that we can just, oh, let someone else take the reins. We are called to make Jesus the center of our lives at every single stage of our life. The question we've got to answer is, in general, day by day, is Jesus the center of your story? Because if he's not the center of your story, then your story, then our lives, no matter how religious we may be by coming to church, by reading our Bible, by checking off all of the, the things that we feel like we're doing, they will be misshaped. And Stephen... Before those who are about to murder him, he boldly proclaims that Jesus is not only the center of his life, that Jesus is the one who completes his story. Stephen uses some harsh language when he's talking back to uh, these, this high council. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He knew how to make friends, didn't he? As your fathers did, so do you. By the way, this is a language taken straight from the Old Testament prophets. But don't miss this. Just as in all of the other sermons that we've looked at in the book of Acts, even what I call a, just a verbal knockout that we see Peter give and here we see Stephen giving, there's always a lifeline. There's always something that's thrown out there to say, hey, here's some grace. It's not too late. Would you turn and trust Christ as your Savior? Three weeks ago, I, I, I said that as followers of Jesus, that if we are going to continue to make an impact for his kingdom, that we must be two things, that we must be bold and gracious. We must be bold that this is the word of God and this is the truth that we stand on no matter what the world tells us. But at the same time, we've got to be gracious. We have to be understanding when others that don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, why should we be surprised that they do things that don't line up with God's word? We've got to be bold and gracious. Another way to say that would be that we've got to speak the truth, but we've got to speak the truth with grace 
to make sure that other people hear us. We see this demonstrated perfectly through Stephen. Stephen's not approaching them with arrogance and pride saying, I, I've got it all right, I figured out you were wrong, and he's not looking down at them in a condescending way. No, he looks at them, I believe, with a broken heart. Quit being stubborn, quit missing what is right in front of you, turn to Christ, it is not too late. And he turns his accusations that are being thrown against him and he calls them to repentance. But again, remember in, in, in Luke chapter, I mean in Acts chapter 4, Remember the Sadducees, were they looking for what was true? No, they were looking for holes in there so they could turn it against them. And that's exactly what the religious leaders here do as well. They look for ways to avoid the truth. And instead of repenting, it says that they're enraged. Verse 54, and now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, meaning Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow. What a picture. I've said often that when, when we trust Christ as our Savior, when we say we will follow you, we will say the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, when we follow him, that it transforms our lives. It's not just an additional thing that we add to our lives. It changes our perspective. It changes our worldview. It changes how we look at people. It changes how we spend our money. It changes how we spend our time. Remember, Peter said that we understand this world is not our home. We don't live for the pleasures of this world, but we live for how we can make an impact for eternity. And here we see Stephen before he is murdered. He looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus doing what? Standing at the right hand of God. Now, usually in the New Testament, when we see a vision of Jesus, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But I think it's interesting that Stephen sees Jesus doing what? Not sitting, but standing at the right hand of God. I don't know this for sure, but I just wonder, is Jesus standing up to welcome home that first Christian martyr that was saying, you were willing to surrender your life for me, and Jesus stands to greet Stephen? Friends, each and every one of us are going to come to that point. Chances are we won't be stoned to death for our faith. But each and every one of us, whether you are a believer or you have trusted Christ as your Savior or not, we will all stand before our righteous judge at some point. And at that point, when we look with our eyes and we see him as he truly is, when we see our Lord and Savior, when we look upon his nail-scarred hands, and when we see Jesus, we are going to realize this this eternity is what mattered more than anything else in this world. And we're going to have so many regrets. Why did I waste the time on earth worried about temporary pleasures when I should have been focused on eternity? This is the world that God created me for, to live with him for all of eternity, not the pleasures here of this earth. That's the perspective that we're shown here with Stephen. Stephen looks up and he has this vision and he sees Jesus and he's reminded that even in the midst of of persecution, even in the midst of, the, of what he's about to do, which is a die for Christ, he sees that Jesus is still ruling and reigning, that Jesus is still the true judge who is overseeing the entire thing. What a picture. And what does he say? He says in verse 56, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. 
Stephen, on his very last day, has such a remarkable likeness to Jesus. Friends, what if the same thing could be said about you and me? And what's the crowd's response to this vision that he shares? Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So this enraged mob, they take him out and they stone him in the most inhumane way possible. And there's only one person who's mentioned by name as being there. Who is that? Saul. We're going to learn more about him next week. Saul, who later becomes Paul, the greatest Christian of all time, who is there giving approval to the murder of Stephen. And church, it's right here in this moment, right here in in Acts chapter 7, that we have an entire turning point in the book of Acts. Stephen's murder will end up, as we'll see next Sunday, will end up serving as the catalyst for the church multiplying and scattering out as they become more and more persecuted. So let's end with this. What does this have to do with us? Oh, that's great. Thank you, Stephen, for your example. What does the story of Stephen have to do with me today? Friends, the story of Stephen teaches us that there is only one story that matters, and that story is the gospel. The story of Stephen teaches us that there is only one Lord, there's only one driving narrative that is worth living and, if need be, worth dying for, and that is Jesus himself. So the question is, is this the story that you are living for? Is this Jesus truly the Lord of your life? Go back to the questions asked earlier. Are you preoccupied with living for Jesus? Is this what you want other people to know about you, that you are a follower of Jesus, or is it something else? Now, a year or so ago, I preached a sermon series called Hero, in which we looked at the characters in the Old Testament, and we saw that they were not the true heroes of the story, that in fact, they foreshadow, they point forward to Jesus. And I want to make sure that as we're reading the story of Stephen, that while we admire him and we look up to him as an example, Stephen is not the hero in the story. All Stephen was doing was following the example of Jesus. But there's one key difference I want you to see between Jesus' life and Stephen's life and their death. See, Jesus didn't just die as an example for us. Jesus' death, it was in our place. Jesus' death purchased our salvation. And ultimately, what we see in the story of Stephen is the rejection of Stephen. It was just another rejection of Jesus himself. So here's the question I want to leave you this morning. The question that I want you to wrestle with this week is are you rejecting Jesus again? Are you rejecting Jesus again by making something else the Lord of your life, something else as the driving narrative of your life? Are you living for eternity? Are you living for God's glory? Are you living for something that that even if you gained it, even if you finally got to that stage of life, even if your kids finally achieved whatever it is that you want them to achieve, even if you got that, guess what? The next week or month or year, you're gonna want something else. What is the driving narrative of your life? The one verse that I can't 
get away from in this passage. The one verse that I say, man, if I could, if I could live this way, what difference it would make. What if we lived our life in such a way that the same people could say this about me and about you, they said about Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit for which he was speaking. Church family, we have got to live our lives in such a way that we outthink and we outserve those who are opposed to the gospel. They are going to know that we're Christians, not by our protest, not by what we're against, by how we love each other first and how we love the outside world. Let me give you four requirements for this to take place. In order for us to outthink and outserve those that are opposed to the gospel, the first thing is we must know the scripture. You cannot live a God-honoring life if you do not know God's word. And I'm not just talking about head knowledge. I'm talking about it is the compass of your life. It is the guide of your life. The second prerequisite is that we must know the people to whom we're ministering. We have to know how they think. We have to know what they care about, that they know that we care about them first before we go and take the gospel to them. The third question is we must desire to be used as a vessel of the master. We must say, God, I want to flee all unrighteousness. I want to be holy and pure so that you can fully use me. And finally, we must stay in tune with Christ by being in a constant state of prayer, knowing that we can't do this on our own. My hope throughout this entire series has been that we would reject lukewarm Christianity that we would turn away from just saying, well, I want to look the right way. I just want to get into heaven, but just by this, just enough to get into heaven. Would we reject that and say, we want to live like the first Christians. We want to live like the disciples. We want God to use us in an incredible way, not for our own glory, but so the kingdom of God might advance through us as individuals, but also through this church. My prayer is that when other people see us, they say, man, I can tell that person they have been with Jesus because their life is radically different. Church family, let's make sure that we are telling one story with our life. Let's make sure that we are living for one vision in our life. And by the way, that story is not about you and it's not about me. That story is the only story worthy of telling. That is a story of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the incredible examples that you give us time and time again of men and women that have followed you, that have surrendered and even given their lives for the advancement of your kingdom. And it's my prayer that as followers of Jesus, for those of us here in this room, that we would say, Lord, with open hands, everything that we have, everything that we are, we surrender everything to you because there's nothing else worthy of our time. There's nothing else worthy of preoccupying our minds other than being used by the master. Give us an eternal perspective so that we flee unrighteousness and we pursue being like Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that is, does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that today they would reach out to you and find that you are more than willing, more than wanting to forgive them of their past, to remove their heart of stone and to give them a heart of flesh so that they might be a child of yours. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the opportunities that you give us to be an example for you. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.